I'm Matt Levine. I'm Ashley Ellis. I'm Jeremy Sparrowin. And this is Cornucopia. So I know this may seem hypocritical, but foodies, man, they're so easy to roast. Yeah, this, is, this is local? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board organic. The hazelnuts, these are local. How big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? For all the concern for the cows, chickens, and pigs on our farms, which, don't get me wrong, that's a good thing, what about the farm workers? Viewed from a plane, the agricultural bounty of California's Central Valley reveals a geometric patchwork, a blend of shapes and colors that look like Mother Earth's own impressionistic art, painting a landscape that doesn't quite seem real. But riding a bicycle from San Francisco to LA, this landscape reveals new facets and dimensions. On the ground, this patchwork dissolves into a vibrant dance of colors green, brown, yellow. On the coast, smaller farms are contained by scrubby hills to the east and the Pacific Ocean on the west. But riding into the Salinas Valley, the fields stretch far and wide. The sun is fierce and the winds are strong. The breeze is ripe with the smell of the harvest. The sweet, sweet scent of strawberries fills the air. Then something bitter takes its place, broccoli. Amidst this flood of colors and smells, the sight of farm workers in the fields overwhelms all other senses. Groups of men and women bent in half, their backs draped with enormous sacks for the harvest. I couldn't help but imagine how much sweat, how much effort went into each and every bunch of broccoli or basket of berries. The reality of the work that went into harvesting that broccoli and those berries and everything else in the produce aisle comes harshly into view. In case it's not obvious, farming is not easy. It's a business where the risks are high, the margins low, and all of it subject to the whims of Mother Nature. But still, we make it work. Actually, we make it work really damn well. So well, in fact, that food is cheaper than it's ever been. And the open secret to how we've gotten here? Labor. Here in California, our best estimates suggest that 60 to 80% of the agricultural workforce is undocumented. You might think that we'd value that work. Well, you might, but then again... Today, we're taking a hard look at one of Trump's core ideas. The question, what happens if he follows through with his immigration plan, or even just a small part of it? So let's establish a few facts about immigration. First of all, some numbers. According to Pew, there's around 11 million undocumented immigrants living and working in this country, which is a lot, but it's actually down from its peak in 2007. In the decades since, around a million undocumented immigrants have actually left the country. And one result of this? 
the majority of those still here have been living in the U.S. for a decade or more, working and raising families just like anybody else. But they are a drain on the government, right? Like, one of the benefits of being an undocumented immigrant is that you don't have to pay taxes. Okay, so two things. One, everyone pays sales tax, which helps fund state and local programs like schools and road maintenance. There's, you know, no getting around that one. And two, this is the real shocker, half of undocumented immigrant workers in the U.S. actually pay income tax. Wait, why would they do that? Well, for the most part, it's like any other job. You know, undocumented workers will fill out W-2 forms when they're hired, just like anybody else. I mean, yes, they are using fake Social Security credentials, but that means that because the credentials are fake, they can't actually claim benefits like Social Security and Medicaid. So, I mean, yeah, that's kind of shady, but people who do this are actually giving free money to the government and anybody else who actually does benefit from these programs. In fact, the Social Security Administration estimates that they're netting billions of dollars every year from these taxes from undocumented immigrants. Okay, so undocumented immigrants pay a lot of taxes and their numbers are actually going down. Is it time to bring in Jerry? Yeah, let's bring in Jerry. That's Jerry Nicholsberg. Professor of Economics, UCLA Anderson School of Management. Okay, so Jerry, as far as you can tell, is immigration as a whole more good or bad for the economy? So the economics profession, through a whole host of studies, uh, is pretty much agreed that uh, immigration in general is good for economic growth. It is a contributor to the vitality of the U.S. economy. And this doesn't speak to whether or not it is documented or undocumented, but all of the studies come to the conclusion that immigration is a positive for the U.S. economy. One of the things that immigration does is it increases the working age population. And with an aging population, as is occurring in all industrial countries, the U.S. is probably in the best shape because the U.S. has had more immigration whereas other countries, the population is shrinking as well as aging. So there's a smaller base to support the aging population. Now, the caveat is that immigration, uh, particularly low-skilled immigration, will compete with low-skilled domestic labor and will drive down wages. Okay, I want to talk more about that caveat, but before we get there, is this plan that Trump has, I mean, is this even possible? Well, one of the issues is the court system. There is a backlog of about a half a million deportation cases today in the courts. And if you're going to add another million per year or more, you're going to have to expand the court system in order to process them. You can't just pick people up a la Chichen Chong's uh, born in East L.A. and drop them on the other side of the border without due process. One can be assured that everyone who is detained is going to have their day in court for the state to demonstrate that they are undocumented and in the country illegally. So you need to do something with the courts. The second is that you need to identify them. What are the big agricultural states? Well, California is one, Oregon is another. They're both sanctuary states. And you find similar situations elsewhere. So it is a big, expensive process to do this. Let's say America could muster the resources to do this. 
How would mass deportation affect how we get our food? We have a little bit of evidence from states such as Arizona and Georgia that made it more difficult for the undocumented to be hired by farmers. And what they found was that a significant portion of their crops rotted rotted in the fields. They just didn't get harvested. Uh, In Georgia, there was a move to use and I didn't know if it was successful, but to use prison labor because the losses to the farmers were so large. If this is imposed nationwide, at least initially, there'll be a smaller supply of food. Smaller supply of food means higher prices for food. If these policies are put into place and are starting to bite on farmers, they will begin to shift to crops that can be harvested mechanically. Interesting. So you're saying this could actually change our diet. That is correct. So if strawberries and other fruits and vegetables that are very labor-intensive to harvest become more expensive relative to, say, grains, then particularly amongst the less affluent, you're going to see a shift towards starchier foods and away from higher-priced fruits and vegetables. On the part of others who refuse to change their diet, they'll spend more of their income on food. There's also one other consequence. If the price of strawberries and avocados and lettuce goes up, that induces Mexican farmers to ship more strawberries and avocados and lettuce to the U.S. So that will mitigate some of the price rise, but uh, at the cost of higher import from Mexico. So those Undocumented farm workers who are picking strawberries on the Oxnard Plain in California are going to be picking strawberries on the Acapulco Plain in Mexico for the same consumers, but they will be spending their money in Mexico rather than in the U.S. So you mentioned that immigration, you know, can put low-skilled jobs at risk, but does that really apply to the agricultural sector? I mean, do we see Americans really filling these roles? There is a price at which you can induce people to do this work. But uh, the experience in Arizona and Georgia is that increasing the size of the workforce just by offering more money to college and high school students, to uh, factory workers who are out of work, uh, is not very successful. You get some, but you don't get very much. It's very hard work. It's backbreaking work. And so individuals evaluate their opportunities, and this isn't very attractive unless you're comparing it to doing similar work for less money in Sinaloa or in Michoacan or in El Salvador. Are there any specific groups that you do see filling these jobs? Well, I think most economists would say that if we are not at full employment today, we are at close to full employment. So that means that in order to get more workers, you're going to have to pay a lot more in terms of wages. And uh, this goes back to the cost of harvesting. There's kind of no way out of having those labor-intensive foods like strawberries have their price go up. So it seems like this plan is not possible. You know, it sounds good to say, hey, there are... 11 million people in the United States who are not authorized to be here. That's against the law. Other people waited in line, and therefore those 11 million need to go home. So that sounds really reasonable until you understand how intertwined those 11 million people are in important parts of the U.S. economy, in particular in the production of abundant and cheap food. 
then it becomes much more complicated. There's a difference between slogans on the campaign trail and actual implementation, and it remains to be seen what happens when the implementation starts. This one's going out to anybody that's ever had to leave their home. It's my story. I came out of a killer neighborhood called River, where life expectancy is shorter than a caterpillar. In our next episode, the point of view we didn't really cover. It's kind of painful to explain to a person, like, I've been here for years, like, let me stay here, because they don't see how much this place means to a person. Like, I've been here all my life. We'd like to extend a big thanks to Jerry Nicholsberg for his time. Check out his work on the Anderson forecast if you want to geek out on econ. If you'd like to put on your tortoiseshell glasses, get even geekier, go to our webpage, www.cornucopia.show. That's cornucopia.show. And if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much wherever else you turn to for your podcasts. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and upvote us. We need your help, and without it, we're going to go cry in the corner of your local supermarket and make your life hard. If you have criticisms, comments, or other feedback, we'd love to hear from you. We can also be reached by email, contact at cornucopia.show. We're also up on Twitter, Facebook, and wherever else you get your social media these days. Tell your mother, tell your friends, tell your enemies, your co-workers about cornucopia.show. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.